it's recording now. Yeah, it says recording. And so this will give us like a file, video and audio. And I can give them to you as well if you want for your podcast. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Whenever I start it. Exactly. When we start it. Um, so anyway, hi. I'm Lindsay. <laughs> and I'm Chris. Awesome. And you're in San Francisco Bay Area. That's there. right. Got it. So Chris, you were interested in starting a podcast. That's how we connected via our mutual friend. And then I also wanted to know a little bit more about your, so I know you're doing a PhD in something to do with, is it water, climate? Exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If you could maybe talk a little bit about how you know, because I'm always uh, interested in hearing about other people's PhDs and like why they chose that topic and like what your, you know, how that all went. Mm-hmm. Well, I just recently completed my PhD and it officially is in energy and resources. Uh, the department is called the Energy and Resources Group um, and uh, at UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. And it's an interdisciplinary program. And so I had focused primarily on water and sanitation in low and and middle income regions, specifically in um, urban India. A lot of my work was focused on that. And so I looked at from an angle of policy planning, I was also in a program called development engineering. Uh, at Berkeley, we call them designated emphasis. It's kind of like a PhD minor. And so okay. I was also in that program as well. And that's the policy planning. Is that is that in policy planning the minor? Uh, it's actually in engineering. Oh, okay. But if it's, it's also interdisciplinary, but it focused mainly on low and middle income regions um, around the world. And, and a lot of focus is also in California. So, and it looks at different sectors like water, uh, energy, and other um, uh, like global issues, uh, specifically focused on like poverty. Wow. Um, so I guess I, I don't know too much about this at all. So um, I guess is this water and sanitation, this is, so what's the the connection between that and poverty i guess in your in your words uh for like the layman like me who don't know doesn't know anything about this sure maybe i can give you an example of the projects that i had been working on so one of the first projects that i had worked on which became part of my dissertation was on analyzing an app called nextrop and Mm -hmm. In places like uh, India, um, most communities do not receive 24 hours of municipal water. Uh, So the city does not provide uh, water 24 hours a day, but it's intermittent. And actually like approximately over, over a billion people in the world do not have 24 hour access to water. And so sometimes different communities don't know when their water will turn on. And so this app would send them a text message and tell them when their water would turn on. It would say, you know, your water is going to arrive in 30 minutes or it's going to be delayed or it's going to be canceled today. 
And so I analyzed that app and I specifically did both kind of a quantitative and qualitative study on this and looked at, okay, how are they collecting this data? Mm -hmm. And um, because what we had also done, another part of my team, um, uh, my colleagues of mine uh, had researched, how, was this app helpful to people? Because it, anecdotally, it seemed like it was helping people, like to tell them when their water would turn yeah. on. But yeah. when they did like an RCT, a random control trial uh, of thousands of households, they saw that there was actually no impact or no positive impact of this app. And so I came in trying to understand, okay, what was happening with the app that was either not helpful and how were they collecting the data? And the main ways that they, one of the ways they were collecting data was through these water valve men and water valve men would go into different neighborhoods to turn on the water every day. And so I tracked their data to see, okay, who, which valve men were actually sending in data and which were not. And so kind of high compliant and low compliant valve men. And then I started to do ethnographic work like observing them, following them every day and seeing what they're doing, what they're not doing, uh, and then to interview them as well. And so following high compliant and low compliant Valvemen, just seeing what their day-to-day -day was like, we saw, okay, for these workers, you know, sending in data is not their high priority, number one, mm -hmm. because they weren't incentivized enough to do it. Um, so this was in a big city, Bangalore, which has about eight, eight to 10 million people. Okay. Uh, but they had started their prototype in a smaller city, the twin cities of Hubli Darwat nearby. And that, that was like about a million, two million, three million people. And so it kind of worked there because it's kind of a lower standard of living and uh, the Valmen were more keen to trying to use the app. While in this bigger city of Bangalore, there's higher standard of living, it required them to do a little bit more incentivize to incentivize them. And we also saw that there were they just had a lot of barriers in their lives, uh, including financial barriers and family challenges. So often Valvemen, this was not their only job because the city had cut a lot of their pay and taken out their um retirement funds and so they were doing two three four different jobs and so being a water valveman wasn't there for wasn't their only job and so they would take on all these jobs um their wives these were all men so their wife if with their married their wives would also take on jobs so this would uh leave a lot of the child responsibilities to the valveman as well and yeah. so the more we found that there was some significance of the valvemen that we sampled to the more children they had, the less likely that they were to comply to the valvemen, to the next drop system. And this was especially significant if they had a girl child. So the more girl children they had, the less likely they were to send in data to next drop. And so this was signaling to us that there are these various barriers, financial and uh, related to their family, that possibly we could consider, you know, does this translate to other fields where you have these kind of frontline workers and they just have all these challenges in front of them and how can you 
help these frontline workers to um, uh, provide services to communities. And so this was a issue focused on water, but we are also looking at, oh, possibly this could help other sectors as well. So this was just one of the projects that I had worked on. And oh. so the water sector is, is quite large because water touches so many different um, aspects of research and um, uh, policy. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, uh, that's awesome to hear about. Uh, and I mean, it's uh, interesting to hear about these challenges because, you know, we can be kind of removed from that in the US when we where we have water all the time. Uh, although I'm from India, I have forgotten about the challenges. And also, as you said, the whole lower standard of living, higher standard of living, you uh, you don't know what the rest of the country is dealing with if you kind of have, I think, I mean, this kind of reminds me in my my childhood, our house had a pump. So the water did come in at a certain time. So we used to have a reservoir and then you had to have a pump because you're storing the water when it comes in in the reservoir and then you have to use a pump to get it up. I think. Yeah, exactly. I don't even know if that's accurate. Um, but I just yeah. think that someone was in charge of uh, doing this pumping thing like mm -hmm. every day, not me. So I, I don't know too much about that. But yeah. Yeah, never really had to struggle with water issues myself, but that doesn't mean that uh, the rest of the 1.2 billion people are not. So. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. I lived in, before I had done the study, I had also lived in India for a number of years. And I also didn't realize that we were not getting 24 hours of water. Um, it's, it's, we sometimes call them coping systems where if the city doesn't supply you with this water you'll have other forms of storage to cope up with it or maybe you use groundwater and so uh, a lot of homes uh, would have if they have the capacity they would have built uh, storage underground huh. and then when the water arrives from the city they fill up these storage tanks and yes. then when it's then they pump up water into a tank on the top of your roof and yeah. then that is gravity fed down into the rest of your house and yeah. so depending on different households and how often the water would arrive from the city some people didn't have the capacity to have that storage so yeah. either under they didn't have capacity to build something underground or they didn't have the proper roof uh, material yeah. to support a tank on top of their house and so uh and this, this is especially in lower income communities where uh, they didn't have the proper housing for a rooftop tank or the money to create a either below house or above storage tank. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's yeah. I forget there was a tank on the roof as well. Yeah. And, wow. and so but they do have mobile phones, which is why Next Drop thought this could be helpful uh, because you can at least send them a text message or a voice message. And, you know, they did this in various languages and they tried to test different things out to see what was helpful. But there are a lot of um, hiccups along the way. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, that's super interesting. I could hear about this for a long time. Uh, <laughs> let me ask you about your PhD experience. Um, like, how, 
I guess a little bit about how you chose this topic and in any um, basically any struggles or challenges you might have had in the program itself for sort of like the PhD students who might be aspiring to do that? Yeah, I mean, just right before um, applying to PhD, I was living in India and I had lived there a number of years working in kind of the international development uh, space. And so I was working on community development, um, cross-cultural communication, and my bachelor's is in environmental science. And so the last thing I did was actually I did a little bit of graduate study in India itself. I was living in um, Varanasi, which is near the Ganges, which is on the Ganges River. And I had seen kind of the Ganges River uh, by the time it reaches the city of Varanasi is highly polluted okay. uh, for a variety of reasons. The main pollutant is um, unsafely treated uh, sewage water. Okay. Um, and there are also a variety of other different pollutants in the water. Uh, but I also saw that it's one, Varanasi is one of the major pilgrimage sites for yeah. Hindus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people would come, pilgrims would come, and in, local people would come and bathe in the water and swim in the water. Um, and some full knowing that there were some constituents in the water of high concentration that could possibly be of harm. <laughs> yeah. And so this kind of cultural, religious, environmental science um, convergence was happening in Varanasi. And I was wondering how I could unpack all of that, you know? Okay. Um, And so that kind of drove me toward grad school to be really reflective on all my years that I'd spent in India to, okay, what are other people saying about this? How can we move forward in water and sanitation? And so I applied to different graduate schools. I got into the program at the Energy and Resources Group at UC Berkeley, which is uh, was perfect for me because it's interdisciplinary. So there was like sociology, economics, and um, environmental science and engineering. Um, also, uh, my advisor, Isha Ray, um, also is from India, and she had done a lot of research in India on water. And so, okay. and I also wanted to make sure that this was a good community. So, mm-hmm. One thing I did try to do strategically was not to owe it while I was applying and figuring out the schools that I wanted to go to was not necessarily to contact the professor, even though that can be helpful, but to contact their students. So it's like, this is a professor that I'm interested in. Who are their students? And I would contact them and students would often be more ready to reply to prospective students. For sure. And kind of give you a slightly more honest opinion (laughs) of how things were going at the department and Mm -hmm. and in their lab groups. Uh, And so I didn't even hear about Isha's lab group until I talked to a different student from a different department. He was like, you would be perfect for the energy and resources group and you would be perfect for Isha Ray. And so I had not heard of this of either of them before. And so it was through kind of the student network where I kind of uh, got to a pretty perfect uh, department for me. 
That sounds excellent. I mean, I think that's part of my, <laughs> I, I said the same thing as to, I mean, you want to check out the group, but also definitely the students and especially if you're interested in the professor, uh, talking to the students away from their professor helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's excellent advice. I love that. Um, so, and so you said, did you graduate this year in 2021? Or in I graduated the end of 2020. Okay, end of 20. Yeah, I submitted my dissertation. Awesome. <laughs> with approval. Yeah. Awesome. So you have you you're done. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so how long was the program? How long did it take? So this was a special program because it's interdisciplinary. They want you to have a background in social science, uh, economics, and engineering. Okay. And so most people don't have that interdisciplinary background. So they start out with a two-year master's program. It's like a proper master's program, and then it goes into your PhD. So overall, I was uh, two years in the master's program. I ended that in 2015, and then I just finished with the PhD portion in 2020. Okay. So that's about uh, five to seven years. Perfect. Okay, that's cool. And so I think I already asked you this, but if you wanted to just go in for the master's, um, it, that costs money, but if you're in the PhD program, they pay you, right? So, so this is a, so. I think in more uh, clearly STEM, like hard STEM mm -hmm. uh, or hard sciences, um, there uh, and more traditional departments like let's say poli sci sociology, there are set kind of. If you're in our PhD program, here's the fi uh, like financial package we can. Do, and it's often okay. like one to two years and I'm talking about UC Berkeley okay. so like one to two years of you know you attending classes and we support you and then you have to do uh some teaching like TA ships um we call them graduate student instruction and uh so and then it could be a mix of those and then while you're doing that you can also apply to NSF the National Science right. Foundation, um, GRFP, the graduate um, program. And so our program was varied. So it depended on the individual. So, okay. um, and I believe this also applies to masters. So they might support you uh, for a year or maybe even two years. And then, but you still have to apply to NSF. I think a lot of programs do this where you uh, everyone should apply to NSF. Uh, and then uh, there could be a mix of uh, uh, being on a research team where you can get funded. We call that a graduate student researcher. So that's another position you can uh, apply for. And then graduate student instructor is what we call uh, RTAs at UC Berkeley. Yeah. Okay. That's, I mean, that's similar, uh, honestly. I mean, we have so at Ohio State too, we um, had to teach until we could be funded for our research. Like you could be in a research group and doing research, but if the professor can't pay you out of their research grants, you might have to teach. In fact, that was the most common thing. Like uh, some people had, uh, I, I think a minority of the class ha have these, these like fellowships from the department where they mm -hmm. just have money, they don't have to teach. But generally it's either you're uh, supported as a research uh, student or as a or as a TA so that that's kind of similar I, I guess applying to NSF um, that too some people do that NSF uh, fellowships for grad students that that's also something I've seen 
Um, I think, I, yeah, I actually couldn't. I think that was only open to domestic students. I couldn't. So yeah. The beginning of grad school, well, most of grad school, I was still international. So I could mm -hmm. not apply for the NSF. Uh, but that's yeah. good to know. It's also it's also not just NSF. There are other grants and fellowships, um, yeah. Yeah. some related to diversity. Others can be government related, like defense um, and education. Yeah. Um, I was on a FLAS fellowship for okay. actually two years, which is the Foreign Language and Area Studies Fellowship, I think, from the Department of Education in the US. Mm -hmm. But again, a lot of these fellowships uh, require you to be a US citizen. Okay. Uh, so there, I think it's just the case across the board, there are limited fellowships for international yeah. students. Yeah, often, often can feel like none. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, but, but I did have funding through, so I could never do the NSF until, um, I mean, when I, when I became a citizen, it was time for me to graduate, and then I got a job in defense. So it turns out, but uh, but yeah, I all, throughout my pretty much undergrad and grad, I kind of felt like all the fellowships were always for domestic students. So, but as yeah. a as a as an international, I did get funded through like the TA and the RA, like I was saying. Mm -hmm. So that was all thanks to my research advisor and the department, um, and it was still through NSF and and NASA, as it turns out, but. But yeah, mm -hmm. so so that's good to know. Um, were there any, so yeah, I, I guess in my blog and podcast, I kind of talk about like some of the hurdles. Would you say that there were, uh, there was something uh, kind of difficult that you had to overcome? Like just the nature of a PhD can be a big challenge. Any comments on that or for that? Yeah, I mean, so many. But <laughs> I mean, I think for everyone, at least the first two years are pretty tough in terms of, you know, getting your classes in, your requirements, getting ready for your whatever you call them. We call them qualifying exams yeah. at Berkeley and even uh, in different departments are called different things. And they're um, yeah, a prelims, some, some have prelims exams. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I think just getting over that, you know, first, especially the first two years of imposter syndrome and yeah. uh, being like, I don't belong here. I snuck in <laughs> and there, now they're going to really see who I really am <laughs> type of a thing. Yeah. Um, and that always sneaks. I mean, that never truly leaves you, but um, at least in my case, but um, yeah. uh, you just kind of push through it and be like, okay. And then especially when you look back, it's like, I've been here for a couple of years now, so I kind of know my stuff. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah, for sure. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. I would say that's true. The imposter syndrome is, syndrome is probably more difficult in the beginning. And then after, mm -hmm. and after a point, you just have to kind of finish. Um, <laughs> and, and it's, it's a, it's another topic, but basically some people do get their masters and get out. They don't want to finish their PhD. They realize it's not really for them um, or not even that. They just, I feel like the PhD program is really, um, it, it may be a little bit uh, glamorized, but it's really not uh, 
it's really not glamorous. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a sort of maybe not even such a good thing to do. Uh, and, and you, and it might be good to just leave if it's not working out uh, instead yeah. of spending more and more years, especially if you kind of decide to leave academia and that you're going to try out something else and get a job and just do that. I feel like that's definitely a track as well. And I, I just like to talk about it because I, I don't want people to feel like they have to finish a PhD if they don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, and if they find some other thing that they want to do, there's definitely a lot of options out there. So, but, you know, for the people who do successfully finish PhDs, it's always inspiring because if someone really, really wants to finish a PhD, then um, some of these like thoughts can help that person push through the, through their difficulties, I guess. Yeah, I think two things that come to mind, which I saw other graduate students struggle with, yeah. um, was one, like, they really wanted to go to grad school, they really want to do PhD. Yeah. And often they, and if they get into the program that they want, especially, they'll have kind of these rock star or superstar professors and advisors, and yeah. that they really want to work with. And sometimes that works out. You get that professor that you wanted to work with, advisor, you get your committee members. Um, but often those people don't end up uh, being who you really wanted them to be in your mind. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. just say that. I mean, I love my advisor, but I, I, I always felt like I'm never, I should never put anyone on a pedestal, especially these yeah. professors and advisors, and just know everyone's going to have their quirks everyone is gonna have has a way of working i know you know right away when you start emailing professors who responds right away and who never responds <laughs> and so just going in like not depending too much or having too much of us of, of starry eyes coming yeah. into your program uh especially about specific individuals because i feel like often grad students uh become disappointed or disillusioned um with, <laughs> with with the people that they kind of admired a lot uh, yeah. before coming to grad school and so they see like the everyday of grad school there's kind of this hidden curriculum how things work um and you know how people get funding and how you move forward how people advance and so that's all of the politics um that are involved in many organizations including um graduate programs and so just kind of going in with an open mind about how things will be and how people will be and kind of knowing that you need to look out for yourself as much as possible um, yeah. because sometimes the graduate graduate school journey can be i wouldn't say a lonely one but it's like you you do have to look out for yourself because your advisors will will not always like be able to hold your hand throughout uh, the program Absolutely. i think it's a great lesson in self-advocating a lot and even the process of actually getting your PhD, whether you actually deserve one, is also sort of, you have to advocate and say that, yes, you know, this is my thesis, I'm graduating, I'm getting out. Like, otherwise, um, it's, you're just, I mean, cheap labor, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, a person, a senior graduate student knows a lot, does a lot of good work. There's no reason to graduate them and let them go because they're doing more and more and more, more work. Uh, and research and they have to be the ones looking out for their careers and that is not always 
the mentality that they might have uh, that yeah. have had coming in. So I completely agree. Uh, what was the second one? <laughs> uh, it was about careers and you like touching off of what you just said is, yeah, maybe your advisors may not exactly be looking out for your career. <laughs> And and they might have this mentality of just you need to do a postdoc after this and then uh, get a tenure track professor because that's what they did, of course. But I think when I started when I was applying to graduate school, even I was like, what am I going to do after this? (laughs) And constantly, like every semester, every year in the back of my mind, at least was like, this is going to (laughs) end. I, I was having a good time. I wasn't like yeah. wanting it to end. But yeah. even though while I was having a good time at graduate school, it was like, this is not going to last forever. And so what do I want? How do I want to be prepared? And I know my most of my professors and the people that I talk to will be assuming that I'll become a professor. Yes. But that's not necessarily I'll keep my eyes open. I will start, you know, as soon as I can doing professional development so that I have, I recognize the skills that I have that can be transferred into other disciplines, sectors, uh, industry, um, uh, the government. And so just trying to keep my mind open. I wouldn't say that I did the best out of that, but it was always something that was in the back of my mind. And even like final year PhD students I talked to, yeah. I was like, what are you going to do after this? I was like, I don't have time to think about this. I have a, I am just need to finish my dissertation. And it's like, you yeah. really need to be thinking about this because <laughs> you are going to submit your dissertation soon. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I totally get that. That's exactly what final year PhDs are just so inundated. They're so overcome, overwhelmed. And like the process really beats people down. Like they, you know, you, there's always just more and more and more research that needs to be done, not more and more uh, life planning and like career planning. And the the whole planning out your career and doing what's best for your career is really not a focus in a PhD. And that's why yeah. I think it's totally okay to leave a PhD program even part, part way through if you have found a different career track that you want to do because the PhD certainly is not helping <laughs> with that. <Yeah. laughs> now, once you have a PhD, it can help in in certain sectors, I mean, some of them it's needed, like, you know, if you wanted to be a professor, but like, yeah, I don't think, I personally don't think it's worth the trouble if you have figured out other things that interest you, <laughs> because it's just, yeah. it's about that topic and what's good for, it, it's kind of like self-sacrifice in a PhD. It's not really about looking out for yourself. So you have to be very careful to do that. So I'm glad you did. And you have a I'm going to start to share my screen because I want to also show you oh, my sure, sure. stuff, but I want to hear about your current job. So you did finish your PhD and get a different job, right? Mm-hmm. So what is it? So uh, it was actually while I was finishing up my dissertation that I had, I had been applying to jobs um, like a year out um, and then, you know, COVID hits. And so I accelerated my job search. Uh, because we didn't know what was going to happen to the co- economy and the job market. And so now I got in a job with uh, the state of California at the uh, State Water Resources Control Board um, as a senior environmental scientist. I focus on climate change and our climate change efforts um, at the board. Perfect. 
And so this was a definitely, um, it was still within the water sector um, and still within policy planning. Um, uh, But, uh, and I had been living in California for the past, you know, a number of years. Yeah. So I was very familiar with uh, California space. Um, And, but this was uh, uh, in many ways a pivot. And, um, and my team leader knew that uh, when he hired me. And, but he saw that I had all these skills from my work with the energy and resources group um, and development engineering. And he could saw how they can all transfer um, to the position that I'm in it in right now. Perfect. I mean, congratulations. It's not uh, easy to line up a job uh, with everything that's going on uh, with finishing up a PhD. So I'm really happy that that happened for you. And, you know, you did this for yourself. So I yeah. it inspires other students to do the same, um, which is that you have to constantly look out for yourself to get uh, a job and have your career stuff be good but anyway i wanted to show uh so is my sh- screen share working i can see your screen yeah okay I can see so um, anchor. anchor okay perfect mm-hmm. yeah since you're interested in doing a podcast i did want to show you this so um yeah so now you can see all my all my everything yeah. Um, analytics <laughs> yeah analytics you know so i started and, and you know i'm an open book what I do is very much, you know, for the public. So I don't really care if the public gets to know about this, but I started this podcast um, last year. So we can even see when was my first, uh, it, it, whatever. It was early, probably March or April of last year. Um, and I did uh, have a blog before that. So actually um, I have this tab opened to this particular blog because I was sharing it. But basically this is my blog. This is how to PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is at howtophd.org slash blog. If we hit this blog button, it'll go to the blog. Then there's other tabs uh, as well. Um, but basically when I was in grad school, I think in the year 2018, late, uh, early 2018 and later that year is when I graduated. Um, that's when I started blogging as a way of mainly for my mental health, I think. Like I didn't even, I, I just like writing And um, I started to, like, I just found myself writing these, like, how-to articles, like, okay, I just passed candidacy, which is, you know, the prelim qualifier exam thing we were talking about, how to do that, like, you know, once I've done it myself, maybe I should write it up so that it can help other students, because I just went through this traumatizing experience myself, so I kind (laughs) of, I kind of started blogging about it, um, and whatnot, and uh, that felt better, like, it basically in a PhD, so much of it starts to feel like it's not in your control. Like, you know, you're doing your research and everything, but like uh, the whole thing about graduation and life and career, all that can seem a bit daunting and out of control. So I just wanted to to have something that I guess I could control, which was this blog. So, (laughs) uh, (laughs) so this is the blog. It got started as I'm trying to find, uh, you know, Let's see. Uh, now it has become a blog that um, has kind of even gotten broader, basically. Like, uh, you know, it's gotten, bro- it's not just about PhD, although I think mm-hmm. it still kind of applies uh, to PhDs and how, how, how you, you know, do your career after a PhD. So I'm a person who, you know, went through my PhD, finished it, 
So I've got things to say about how you finish one and then uh, I got a job, now I'm in the job. So I, I basically cover those types of topics also as a woman in STEM cover those types of issues and things like that. So this, it, so basically my content kind of started off as a, as a website. So I know you already have a website, so you're not interested in that. But uh, the thing about the my, my own podcast is that a lot of my content is already present in blog form. So now when I started my podcast, I just had to kind of convert some of this content into uh, a podcast episode, which I use Anchor. So it's very simple. You can get the Anchor app on your phone and there's also a website, like a you know web browser version. This is it right here. And then you get this dashboard and you can just, you know, this is your new episode button right here. You can just hit that and start recording. And you can either use like, say, you know, with Zoom, I'm not, I don't even have a mic um, or, or on your phone. Like you can record record on the, on the app on your phone. Uh, it actually kind of, I can even show you the app on my phone here. It just looks like this is the app on the phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can see people listen to my last episode that I that I posted a couple of days ago. Um, but yeah, you can just hold this phone to you know close to your face and start recording an episode on your phone or on the computer using your computer's mic or or a mic that you, that you purchase if you want. I didn't even buy a mic uh, because you know I didn't know how it would go. Uh, but yeah, this podcast is less than. A year uh, old and I have 30 episodes on it right now so far and I guess I have 37 estimated audience and 44 unique listeners look at look at that I mean 44 people listening to just me talking <laughs> or 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 a guest actually uh, uh-huh. I also have guest episodes like this one so um it's totally a thing. And oh, the biggest, biggest thing is that, as I was saying before, once you record your episode on Anchor, Anchor distributes it to all the major plat- podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, everything. So what's this money button? You can even monetize it. I, think. <laughs> I haven't mm-hmm. I haven't monetized it. I think you can even record little uh, sponsor snippets and get money. Uh, but I haven't tried that. Oh yeah, distribution. So the distribution, this is the most important thing. Like instead of, so see it distributes to, so Anchor, you know, you can go to Anchor and listen to my podcast. You can go to Breaker and listen to my podcast. You can go to Google Podcast, Overcast, whatever this is, Pocket Casts, Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and also Apple Podcasts. So Apple will be the longest. It takes the longest to get accepted as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, just so you know, when you start Mm. your podcast. But pretty much on all the other ones, and there's so many here, right? This is all the podcast platforms. Some of them I've never even heard of. Like apparently that's a podcast platform, like Pocket Casts. Yeah. But if there's people listening on that platform, you want to reach everybody. So that's what I love about Anchor. It's free. Everything is free. Um, and you can, uh, once you record your episode and you, and you publish, which is this is all just buttons. You're, you know, pressing a button to record. You're pressing a button to publish. It's not too bad at all. Um, you can uh, readily also distribute. Anchor will distribute for you. Um, so that's okay. So now this is the screen of making an episode. So you can even look at this. So if you create, go to create your episode. There's like these um, uh, things like transitions, messages, whatever that you can. Uh, select from so you can even so if I hit on transitions see there's these like 
little uh, snippets of like, basically like little uh, music pieces that you can add to your episode, like in the beginning or the end or the middle, wherever you want. And basically that, that's the segment that plays. And then you, you know, if you're recording, uh, if you say record, see right here, if you say record, uh, it will record your, um, your voice, like what you have to say. And then you can also add the other segments. So it's all very like user-friendly. I, I, I find it to be like, Podcasting is like the most easy to make content for me because, you know, with blogging, you know, I feel like there's more work, uh, especially to make it like SEO friendly and all that stuff, which I started to do. I don't even know if it works, but like um, it's, it's, it's more overhead. I feel like with any other types of content for me, at least podcasting, you don't even have to look good. Like you can just record. Like <laughs> can see Wait, you. What? <laughs> um i mean you always look good i'm sure oh, uh, which is why actually what you could do is you could uh like uh, as you're recording for your podcast you could turn on your video and you could record yourself video as well and then you have a podcast episode out of it as well as a youtube uh channel mm -hmm. episode out of it so and you can also have a youtube channel because this is the thing a lot of people listen to youtube for audio they don't even watch the video yeah uh, it's uh, it's crazy so like there's a lot of content consumption going on uh so and i think podcast is an important one because you know even at the gym anywhere people will listen uh to content these days it's gotten very uh people are listening to books like mm -hmm. it's crazy um i think there's still there are still people who read and watch videos but podcast is really big right now because it's become a whole thing. Like people listen to their, people have their fav favorite podcasts and uh, they, people, uh, if the mindset is that they're doing something productive and they're listening to something that, that's useful and helpful. So I think, I mean, a topic like yours, um, which I believe you already told me that it was about the PhD uh, process or something like that for your, from your perspective, I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things. This is a great, this looks like a great tool, Anchor. Um, yeah. But yeah, and I, th I think I'm still figuring out how, really? what the theme of my podcast is. And it might be similar to yours in the sense of helping PhD, potential PhD students, helping current PhD students, and then beyond um, in terms of like STEM, women in STEM. Um, and so yeah. something maybe similar to that. During my grad school, I did something similar. I didn't do a blog, but I did, I was, I did programming for grad students. So I put together these checking groups uh, for UC Berkeley, uh, their graduate division, and which would focus on professional development. Um, and so, and I also helped uh, start establish our diversity, equity, inclusion student committee at my department. And so I did a variety of things at in grad school and just kind of all those learnings and things um, that I would want to kind of pass on to to current grad school students as well, and uh, yeah, I've just helped a lot of people with their personal statements, applying for fellowships, um, and just seeing all those in and outs, um, and just wanting to pass that on, and also finding a job during COVID. So I just thought it'd be helpful to to get those learnings out and to see if people connect with them. Um, as well 
those topics are all really great. I mean, honestly, you could just get started. Pick your pick a topic and just do it. And like, yeah. So I would say more than anything, what kind of um, what I find to be like how to do all this is to just do it. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't be too worried about different types of things. Um, as I found, most people don't even care about what you're doing, um, but you will find your audience through your content. Like, you know, I found my 37 people. It's like, yeah, <laughs> they're listening apparently. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and when things are new, of course the numbers are lower, but I mean, I think you, you can and will gain, gain a lot of traction and um, the consistency of posting also helps a lot with that. So I try to post at least one or two episodes per month for the podcast and then the blog. Um, I mean, there have been a months when I didn't get to post at all because it, it is a bit more work to do the blog. Uh, however, again, recently I'm trying to post more, uh, more consistently and it does help like people actually do um, consume this kind of content. And I, I'm not even saying that I have been doing it all that professionally or all that well. Um, and, and people, you know, you never know like who, who you will attract. Like you, some people, uh, like people do gravitate towards the topics, um, even without, like, I'm not a famous person, but like somehow people are kind of getting drawn to the topics that I'm, that I'm talking about. So I think, I mean, as far as like helping out, it's very rewarding because even if one person gets helped uh, mm -hmm. in, some, in something like how to find a job during COVID like you, that's very, uh, that's very helpful. Yeah. Okay. That's inspiring. <laughs> Encouraging. <laughs> yeah. Just to start. I think that's the thing. Yeah. You can, yeah. And uh, so did you have any more questions about the process of podcasting or anything like that? Um, I think it, technically it seems pretty straightforward. And then as, as if I advance further than maybe getting more equipment or something, I, I had another question about social media. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I'm thinking because like there's a public person, like your public brand, it's, mm -hmm. it's also related to brand. So I was thinking of using my Twitter, which is already public as yeah. kind of the main way of people connecting with me other than just putting a podcast out there. Um, yeah. I was thinking of also Instagram. What was kind of your kind of approach to social media? Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of Gary Vee. Do you know who he is? No. Um, yeah, well, he is he is all into the whole make content and post content on every kind of social platform. So I actually post on, so right now, so, okay. Big social platforms that are doing really well for organic right now are TikTok, uh, LinkedIn, and the new thing is Clubhouse. So I don't know if you oh, have yeah, a Clubhouse. Apple phone, Clubhouse. Uh, no, so I have Android, so I can't even get Yeah, Clubhouse. I also have Android, so. Okay, well, screw it. But there's TikTok. <laughs> And LinkedIn. So for you, actually, you'd be perfect, especially for LinkedIn and yeah, also LinkedIn. TikTok. Anybody, honestly, anybody's perfect for uh, TikTok because TikTok has huge, um, a big, big audience, and mm -hmm. more people are consumers on TikTok than are creators. Like you'll see, you'll see these creator accounts that have hundreds of thousands and millions of followers, but then there's most people on TikTok, as far as I know, 
actually like watch the videos, they don't actually make content. So if you make content on TikTok, chances are you're gonna start to gather a, an audience because you know people are gonna like your videos. Like you might not get 1 million followers on day one, but like you're gonna get the those eyeballs basically yeah. for content. So TikTok is pretty huge. Um, and then LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn, especially for professional topics like, like what you're uh, talking about for that sort of thing, LinkedIn is huge. LinkedIn has their, has its own article publishing platform, Pulse. Mm -hmm. um, that's great. And like just posting on LinkedIn, like just, uh, you know, the LinkedIn make a post, just uh, publish post yeah. on LinkedIn. That's like share, say you make a podcast episode, then you can share your, you can say a little bit about your episode and, and share a post on LinkedIn. Uh, which uh, which is which will give you a lot of organic reach like people that you don't even know they'll start to follow you on linkedin like because yeah. of your content so i would say i mean twitter is great too twitter is a little bit slowing down and dying but you mm -hmm. if you already have a big following on twitter then definitely leverage right wherever you are, already have some kind of traction yeah. so it's good my twitter is really small because Mine is very small, it. but it's like the only public facing thing that I have <laughs> right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Twitter, uh, Twitter is great. Everything is great. Like I, I post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, um, Snapchat, pretty much everything. I, Snapchat? I even have yeah, I even have Snapchat. I have a public profile on Snapchat. I can show it to you. <laughs> no, seriously. Ah, so the best advice is to just do every platform just do every it platform. okay every platform you want it because um you know you i never know <laughs> my snapchat i guess okay. you can, but it's a little it's really bright but yeah <laughs> um no see whatever you can't if there's reflections but but yeah even snapchat because uh it's just a so for brand for personal brand purposes, the more exposure you have, the more across the platforms you are, the better. Like the more platforms you can cover and just go across the board everywhere, uh, that's that's the best thing. If you want to stick to your Twitter because that's easy for you and you don't want to do social um, too much or go nuts on social media, that's fine too. It's just whatever is comfortable for you. I would say some people really hate doing social. For those people, um, there's also you can like pay someone to do social for you if you, you know, get to that point where uh, you want to do that. Um, I still I don't do that. I don't pay anybody to do my social. I yeah. don't have a team. I don't have. <laughs> I'm just a side hustler. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, sometimes it, it may be worth it. Like some people pay, have a team or they pay one person to do their social for them because it's kind of exhausting to do social. But like I've gotten kind of. It's also practice. Like if you say like um, with social, if you just post and kind of recycle your content on all the platforms, it's not too bad to, to uh, share your stuff. So, so yeah, I don't know if that, if that answers your, your question. Yeah, no, it's helpful to know what you, you're, you've been doing and how you've approached it, yeah. Yeah, and, and honestly like my Twitter and my Facebook, so I do have a Facebook page so here's the thing with WordPress blogging, my blog is with WordPress. I have uh, hmm. connections to like my Instagram and my Facebook and my LinkedIn and my Twitter. So it auto posts actually. Whenever I blog, I it auto posts on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So I don't even mm -hmm. have to, I've, I've uh, automated that pro process. Um, so you could do some of that. 
Um, but uh, as far as uh, then that you know, as far as sharing and posting and stuff, there's always it's always also good to kind of like do a little bit of a personal touch kind of post. That's not just an automated robot uh, sounding thing. So mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's up to and and you'll figure it out it's like once you start doing it you kind of see like how things are doing uh and most importantly i just i'm not even ashamed like i don't care if people think i post too much or yeah they don't like my stuff and they unfollow me you just have to kind of get over that so it's kind of tough like you know or you might get a comment that's bad um like on tiktok i was working out and i post a video because I was like I don't even care I'm working out I'm gonna post a video and then someone commented on like what I was wearing and I'm like okay what, what what I was wearing was not important in this content but okay whatever right so people can be mean and stuff I haven't had too much of that but uh I know that that can scare people away from posting yeah and uh, I would just say you know whatever uh content creators have to kind of have a thick skin um, yeah and your content is way more important than these people's comments. So, yeah. So. And I think before people were pretty scared and of like, what will people say if I put this stuff up? And now, you know, after four years of whatever was put on social media, yeah. I think people are a little bit more open <laughs> to sharing things on social media. So, yeah. And honestly, it's also your, um, what's the word demographic so like say mm -hmm. you're targeting so facebook is now mostly older people like my mom is on facebook like yeah. my mom and dad if you want to target the moms and dads then that then facebook is for you if you want to go um little you know younger uh, or even teenagers i mean tiktok tiktok has all the teenagers and and even people my age, right? Like millennials or, you know, a little older, like everybody. Like there's like mm -hmm. I think over a billion people on TikTok. So TikTok is just huge. And then LinkedIn, uh, all kinds of professional people. Like most people log into LinkedIn to do their, um, like it used to be a job related job search, job um, whatnot tool, but now it's much more of a content platform, um, LinkedIn. So it's, much more like people actually scroll through LinkedIn uh, in search of like things they can read and stuff like their people are serious about the content on LinkedIn because you know that's just some something social they get on and they they like things or they read things I've also found that people I mean a lot of you might think from your likes on LinkedIn uh, that it's only a few people but actually a lot of yeah. people see your content people just don't like as much on LinkedIn as they do on Facebook yeah. <laughs> uh so so yeah and twitter twitter and facebook are hard because twitter and facebook are saturated like twitter and facebook have been around for so long that um if you didn't become start a twitter in like 2008 2009 then it's hard because yeah. um yeah that's my problem twitter and facebook are really small for me facebook also like because I have deleted it a couple of times because of, you know, uh, my mm. job and stuff like that. I feel like I've lost some of my Facebook traction, but it's fine. Like, you know, life goes on, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, for people, who, I feel like for people who have real jobs, like we're not trying to be, I mean, maybe you are. I'm not trying yeah. to be like a full-time influencer. Like, yeah, no. 
right? Right? Like we have real jobs and we are real people. This is only a part-time effort. I'm not going to worry about having a lot of followers. I'm still going to post my content and I'm still going to do my content and post it and stuff, but, and, and have a public profile. So, so yeah, you were right. You were saying having a public profile, that's, that is super important for your branding and for people to like look you up and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's good. Like, okay. Like who is, you know, who is this Chris guy? Then they, you know, something shows up. Uh, yeah. it, is, it is nice to have that. You could even make your handle, uh, like your Twitter handle or whatever, like your, uh, you know, like the the name, you can make it something to do with your podcast and then yeah. completely uh, connect your podcast to you, to the to the account. So just that kind of thing makes sense a lot. Like anybody mm-hmm. who is trying to put anything out there makes sense to have social presence uh, to whatever degree you are comfortable with. But um I have learned not to get too disappointed with like, you know, if not everybody's following me and liking my stuff, yeah. fine. <laughs> because that's not what I'm trying to do. Like, that's not my effort. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful to see that perspective and, yeah, and I have different ideas for how I can brand myself. But uh, let's see. Yeah, and if you have more questions, let me know. We can also mm-hmm. chat. And I know it's uh, like nine o'clock. You probably have to go. Yeah. Um, but you can. I'm happy to take more questions about this topic, and we can do another call if you want, or yeah, start a podcast, and you want to do one of these types of things for your podcast. Let me know. <laughs> sure. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe you can be on my podcast podcast yeah, <laughs> once I, mean, I start it up. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to be. Great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, depending on whatever topic. I mean, I did a PhD in physics, particle astrophysics. So mm-hmm. um, you can always bring that perspective to one of your episodes if you yeah. choose. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Well, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me and for sharing your podcast wisdom <laughs> with me. <laughs> Oh, no, I, I'm so glad I got to hear about the stuff you work worked on. I think that's super interesting. And yeah, thank you for sharing on that. I think a lot of people will learn and get aware of something that they didn't know before uh, from that. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. I'll see you next time. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thank you.